So for those of you online, to catch you up, uh, marriage is, again, a way that God really helps to point us to our need for him. And uh, in, in the South, marriage has a little bit, uh, there's, there's a little different weight to it. In fact, uh, you're expected to be married very soon after high school. Like I had friends who got married the day after our graduation, um, which I thought was weird, but that's how they decided to do it. They're still married uh, by God's grace. So. Uh, you know, if, uh, if you are not married by the time that you get out of college, you're behind. Uh, you, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're a little slow. And so then uh, if, you, if you get to the age of 30, though, uh, you become like one of those uh, premature babies in the 1920s who were in like these primitive incubators at Coney Island. People would come and pay like five cents to look at you and to dissect you and to ask like, well, are you okay? What's wrong? wrong with you. That's what I felt like living in the South at almost 30 years old and unmarried. Um, They would ask the question, well-meaning as it was, well, don't you want to get married? And I'm like, yeah, I would love to, to get married. That would be nice. Um, but, but really, the truth of the matter is, is even though I wanted to get married, I just hadn't met the person that I wanted to accommodate into my life. You see, for those of us that, that got married after the age of like 25 or so, uh, you, you know that this, this thing happens. For those of maybe who aren't married that are over the age of 25, you'll understand this as well. You get out of college and you start to build your life. You start to build your life around things that you want to do, where you want to be. You start to, to find, you know, your, your apartment and you, you get to, uh, you know, start to, to get in these idiosyncrasies. You put your clothes into piles, clean, not so clean and dirty, right? Like, those, like these things start to happen. And then you meet this person. You're attracted to them and you think, you know what, I... I could see myself spending the rest of my life with them. So you decide to get married and you get, you get caught up in the romance and the chemistry and the fantasy of it all. You choose to get married and then all of a sudden that fantasy and romance becomes more and more real. You go on your honeymoon and then you come back and you spend your first night together in your new shared space. And maybe it lasts a week, maybe it lasts a month, but eventually... You're going to find that all of a sudden there's laundry baskets where that pile of clothes used to be. You're going to find that your bathroom is taken over by hanging clothes like it's Little House on the Prairie or something. Uh, I didn't know that clothes needed or couldn't be dried before I got married. Uh, you, you go in the middle of the night to find a cup because you just want some water and you can't find where the daggum cups are. Your, your, your life your, has been impeded upon. Your sleeping space has been invaded. Your whole life has changed to accommodate another human being. Now, let me say this. It's not all bad because your dreams and your hopes and your, uh, you know, these wonderful things come together, but it's hard to accommodate another person. In fact, those of us that follow Jesus, we know that it's really only by God's grace that we can love our spouse the way that he intended us to to serve another person without being served, to love another person like we love ourselves, to honor them. All of it takes accommodating. But even though there are accommodations that need to be made in our schedule and in our living space, the accommodations that are hardest are the ones that have to come in our heart. 
And it's really only by having a new heart that we're able to live out marriage as God intended. And this idea of a new heart isn't like this novel idea that I came up with. It's all throughout the Bible. Uh, It's highlighted really well in uh, a book called Ezekiel that was the writings of a prophet in, uh, in ancient Israel. And he said this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, I love this imagery of a heart of stone. It's a heart that cannot expand. It's a heart that cannot be molded. A heart that cannot be accommodating. But this is the heart that God wants from us, a heart that can be molded and shaped and that it can accommodate a new life that Christ provides for us. John, who was a close follower of Jesus, described it like this when Jesus said, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. But this, this abundant life that Jesus wants to give us cannot be contained in the structures of our old life or in the confines of a stone heart. And in our passage today, Jesus is going to show how life in the kingdom that he is establishing cannot be contained in an old understanding of the law of Moses. So if you have your Bible, I'd love you to open them. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5. Luke is a biography of Jesus written by an early first century doctor and a lawyer who followed Jesus' disciples around to learn about Jesus. It's in the New Testament of your Bible about three-fourths of the way through if you want to flip through. If you can't find it, look in the, the table of contents. It'll tell you exactly where it is. We're going to read the entire passage through, and I'll explain to you why here in a second. But we're going to start chapter 5, verse 33. Then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But, but the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it in an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill, and the skins will be ruined. No, no, new wine is put in fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking the old wine, wants new because he says the old is better. On a Sabbath, he passed through the grain fields. His disciples were picking heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating them. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, haven't you heard what David and those who were with him did when he was hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. He even gave some of those who were with him. Then he told them, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. A man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a charge against him. But he knew their thoughts, and he told the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand here. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do, on the, do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or destroy it? After looking around at them all, he told him, stretch out your hand. He did, and his hand was restored. 
They, however, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now, there's a lot in this passage, and I'll admit that for years I've read this passage and, and, and I guess understood it, but never really, when, you know, when, when it was time to, to preach it, I was like, I, what the heck is this saying? I don't, I don't really know. You know something about wineskins and, and, and patches, I was very confused. And so I had to sit and, and, and with, you know, by God's grace and, and the work of the Holy Spirit, and then just sitting with uh, the teaching team here, we really started to chew on and mine out and expose what this text really is about. And sometimes when we're reading through scripture, it takes that. Not all of scripture can we just read and say, oh yeah, totally get it and move on. Now, oftentimes when that happens, either it's inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which is incredible, or you're just wrong. A lot of times we just have to read and think and find a context for what's being said. And so for, for this context, I, I want us to, to really look on the, the parable that Jesus tells in the middle of two narratives. And that parable starts in verse 36. And, and it's very interesting, but it'll give us a, a lens through which to look at the story ahead and behind this parable. See, in this parable, we see this contrasting of old and new, the old garment, the old wineskin, and the old wine. Each of these is a slightly different picture of the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach here. He's, but he's teaching about an old and a new covenant. There are so many analogies that can be drawn, but if we really want to focus in on, on the big idea, if you will, the big idea really centers on one word, rigidity. New cloth would shrink and the old wouldn't shrink with it, so it would tear away because it was rigid. The old wineskins had already been stretched, so if they were filled with new wine that would undergo anaerobic respiration and would release carbon dioxide, it would burst the old wineskins because they were too rigid and it couldn't be flexible. The old covenant, after humans got their hands on it, turned into rigid rules upon rules upon rules that were man-given, not created by God. The rigidity of old garments, the rigidity of old wineskins, the rigidity of old ways. Rigidity is a word that gives us a lens through which to look at these scriptures. So the passage begins with a question about fasting. Fasting was one of 613 laws given from God to Moses through the Old Testament. 613. And in trying to be good followers of God, ancient Israel built walls around these lots. They saw what was said, and they said, I want to be so far away from breaking God's laws that I'm going to build a rule upon a rule upon a rule. Now, it was well-meaning. But what ended up happening was they created a space where there was no flexibility, only rigidity. Fasting was one of those laws, and fasting only had one mention in, in all of these 613 laws. It was specifically tied to a thing called the, the Day of Atonement. Fasting was intimately tied with sadness and mourning and sin. Now, over time, fasting was called for for its different purposes. Oftentimes, it was to call a nation back to God for them to refocus from their sin. Then, at some point in history, it took a turn. It became no longer a response, but a ritual. 
it became a twice a week requirement where the Pharisees would whiten their face and leave their clothes disheveled. They wouldn't bathe and they would try to look as forlorn and sad and joyless as possible. Not in response to their sin, but to observe a ritualistic observation. The overall effect made true religion seem gloomy and joyless. Now, Jesus came, though, to show us what loving God really looked like. And Jesus uses a metaphor of a wedding here to help us show why the disciples don't fast. He said this in verse 34, Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guest fast while the groom is with them, can you? See, Jewish weddings were a little more elaborate than the things that we do today. After the initial ceremony, there would be a week-long open house, which sounds like a nightmare to me, but a week-long open house where people would just come over all the time, and they would celebrate, and they would feast, and they would be joyful. They were guests of the bridegroom. They were even relieved of religious practices that would lessen their joy. That's how important joy was and feasting was to this wedding. Jesus would go on to call himself our bridegroom and call us his bride. And so finally, after thousands of years, he had arrived. So the disciples had every right to be joyful. They were feasting with the bridegroom. They were excited. These feasts, like the one we looked at last week, where Jesus invited sinners and sufferers to come to the table with the Lord of the universe, invite us as it had invited them into joyful feasting. Feasting and joy are synonymous, and they're also synonymous with Jesus coming. All throughout the biographies we have of Jesus, we see feast after feast. When Jesus is around, people party. That's just kind of how it goes. We also see this at the end when there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, the description that we find in the book of Revelation, where we will have a giant feast with Jesus. So Jesus, though, isn't saying that fasting because of this feast is useless now. In fact, Jesus would go on to tell in another story that fasting is sometimes necessary. What he did say, though, was that loving God, especially in light of him coming, is a joyous thing. There is time for a somber confession and for lament over our sin. In fact, here at the Hallows, we make time for that in our corporate worship gatherings. However, we cannot and we should not stay in that lament and stay in that forlornness. We cannot stay eyes down gazing at our own navel. No, we, we lift our eyes to Jesus. We lift our eyes to the one who, even through our inadequacy to hold up God's law, completely fulfilled God's law. He upheld every piece and then because of his righteousness, he was able to pass that right standing with God to you and to me. Being in the presence of Jesus should bring us relentless joy. And for those of us who have decided to put our faith in Jesus, like the disciples, Jesus lives in us and with us today. His presence is here. We are the dwelling place of God's Holy Spirit. But you see, the Pharisees couldn't understand this because the walls of their heart could not accommodate the joy that Jesus provides. Their hearts of stone were so rigid 
there was no room for Jesus. Those of us who are in Christ, we have been given hearts of flesh, and our joy expands with our knowledge of Jesus and our obedience to God's law. The early reformer Martin Luther said it like this, a Christian should, be a, should and must be a cheerful person. If he isn't, the devil is tempting him. It's a hard challenge, but I think it's a true one. We have more hope than anyone. We have been given joy unspeakable. We have the Lord of the universe dwelling with us and in us. So why are we not joyful? How can we not be joyful? For so long, the church has been known as the somber and forlorn body. But if we're truly living out life in the presence of Jesus, we will live joyfully. God does not desire of us rigid religious observance and forlorn, um, forlornness, us looking down at our inability to follow his law. In fact, Hosea, who was an early prophet in the Old Testament, put it this way, For I desire faithful love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. As we get to know Jesus, we can only know joy. These burnt offerings and, and these sacrifices that Hosea is referring to were old ritualistic ways of getting to God. And while they were required by law, they were insufficient. They, you see, the rigid rituals of mourning and lament without the knowledge of the joy of Jesus have no merit to God. Hearts of stone can walk through those motions. Hearts of stone can contain ritual religion. Hearts of stone can contain joylessness, but it takes a heart of flesh to accommodate the joy that Jesus provides. Now, I, I want to zoom in quickly on verse 39, which is the end of this parable that Jesus is talking about. It says this, and no one after drinking old wine wants new because he says the old is better. Now, anyone who's a wine drinker in here, uh, you know that older is better, right? Like, the, the, we want a wine to age. We want it to get better. But we have to remember that Jesus is talking parabolically here. And the new wine and the old wine that he is talking about are a new and old covenant. The old wine, the old covenant, is one that has, over time, become weighed down by rituals and adherence to them over loving God and loving people. The new wine with which Jesus is referring could, would be a relationship with him. This new promise that would orient God's people on what the true intent of the law was, to love God and to love people. See, it was much easier for religious people of the day to lean into things that made them appear holy. Man-made laws that were masquerading as God's. It was much easier for them to do that than to actually satisfy the intent of the law. The law was an answer for humans' hungers for justice, righteousness, and mercy. A spiritual dissatisfaction. But only through completely upholding the law, the letter, and the intent, could one see justice, righteousness, and mercy fulfilled. And the only one who could do all of those things was Jesus. But this would be really scary for an early first century Pharisee. 
One of my favorite shows is a show called How I Met Your Mother. And in it, there's a, a guy named Barney Stinson. And Barney makes these crazy, wild sayings. He, all, he says, I have one rule over, over, and over again. One of his rules in one of his episodes, he tries to live by the adage, new is always better. And by the end of the episode, he realizes that new is scary and new is hard. And sometimes new is terrible. So Jesus knew that this new for the Pharisees would be scary. It would be hard. In fact, that's what he is talking about here. Jesus is talking about the Pharisees would have known the old wine, known the old covenant, and said, that's good enough. I don't even want to taste of the new. See, we love to be comfortable. We love our favorite pair of shoes. We love our standby order at our go-to restaurant. We love our religious observances. And we will defend them vehemently. So when we look at the Pharisees, we cannot judge them harshly. Because we are very same, the very same people. But an ancient Hebrew worship song that we call Psalm 38 puts it like this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus knew that if we could only taste of the new covenant that he was making. That our hunger for justice and righteousness and mercy, our spiritual satisfaction would be satisfied beyond all measure. The thing is, a heart of stone cannot accommodate this new covenant. It won't even allow us to taste the wine that Jesus offered. This covenant would satisfy the constant need for fasting, and it would give a new way to look at the Sabbath. I think that's why Luke puts these stories together. Because it is a little strange if we look in the sequence. We have fasting, and then we see this parable, and then immediately we go into two, uh, or two stories of Sabbath. We see this narrative about the disciples walking through someone else's field that wasn't theirs and picking wheat. Now, this was completely within their, the bounds of their law, and I'll tell you about that in a second, but it happened to be on the Sabbath. Luke describes them as doing three or two very specific things, uh, picking and rubbing, their, rubbing it in their hands. We could call this reaping and winnowing and threshing. Don't know what those words mean, but stick with me. I'll tell you what they are. The Jewish law code is a thing called the Mishnah. The Mishnah was the, the civil and religious law that governed Israel. It included the 613 laws of Moses that God gave, but then it also included parts where the Mosaic law didn't quite cover, because the Mosaic law didn't cover every single thing that would be uh, observed and happened in the life of Israel. But it also then went farther and expanded on what those laws that God gave meant. One of the laws that God gave to Moses in a book called Exodus, in, the, in what we call the first 10 commandments, was that man should work six days and then should rest on one that we would call a Sabbath. But work is a very ambiguous term. So what the Mishnah did and what these Israelites well-meaning did was they defined what work meant. And they had 39 definitions of what, meant, what work meant. Three of those 39 definitions were reaping, winnowing, and threshing. So by man's estimation, what the disciples were doing was breaking the law. 
There was no room for flexibility in the definitions. They were rigid. But Jesus, being the one who wrote the law, kind of understood what it meant. And so, see, the, the law, in the way that it was being observed, left no room for mercy and justice. Remember how I said it was lawful for the disciples to pick someone else's grain and eat it? Well, in a restating of the law that we call the book of Deuteronomy, this provision is given for the poor and the hungry. They, they, the poor and hungry could walk through someone else's field or vineyard, and they could eat the grain or eat the grapes so that they wouldn't die. God's law provided justice for the poor. He provided mercy and provision to satisfy those things. And I don't think we could argue that giving provision for the poor and the hungry is anything but justice, at least if you follow Jesus. And so this is where Jesus finds himself and his followers, his disciples. They're homeless and they're poor and they're hungry. So by all rights, they're picking at this food. They break man's definition of work because they had a need. But I don't believe they break God's law because Jesus never did. And Jesus defends what the disciples were doing. In fact, he defends it by using a story that we studied about a year ago out of the book of 1 Samuel, where David is, is on the edge of death, of hunger, and he comes to the temple. He comes to God's presence, and the only food that is there is the bread of the presence, which by God's law is reserved specifically for the priests. But he takes it, and he eats it, and he gives it to his followers as well so that they wouldn't die. And no judgment comes on them. It seems that the point Jesus is making is that the intent of the law was never to circumvent justice. It was never to circumvent mercy. Blind adherence to religious practices could have possibly cost David and his men their lives. But just like Hosea said, it's not blind observance to God's laws, to religious practices, that is what, is what God desires. A contemporary of Hosea, a man named Micah, put it this way. They said, these are the things that God desires. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before God. The old way of looking at the Sabbath left no room for mercy or justice. If a man was dying of hunger and he had no food that it was accessible to him other than what he could pick and eat, would it make sense that God wanted that man to die? No. It seems absurd. God would see that person with mercy, and his just law would allow for that hunger to be fed. This seems to be what Jesus is pointing out. The Pharisees had lost sight of what the Sabbath was for, worship of God, and focused only on what shouldn't happen on the Sabbath, which is work. Their hearts of stone could not accommodate the satisfaction of the law in this way, a satisfying of justice and mercy. Hearts of flesh can see the law satisfying both. Now, Jesus supplies that satisfaction at the cross, a place where mercy and justice embrace. This satisfaction can only be supplied by Jesus. This is how he completely fulfills the law, 
And this is how, in his words, every word of the law and the prophets points to and speaks to him. When lived out perfectly, God's law accommodates all of these, mercy, justice, and righteousness. When lived out fully and completely, God's law satisfies our spiritual longing. But only Jesus could live the law perfectly. The satisfaction of mercy is on full display in the last part of this narrative. Again, we find Jesus on a Sabbath doing what Jesus does, teaching about the kingdom of heaven. So when a man walks in with a shriveled right hand, Jesus knows what to do. But the Pharisees are sitting there waiting. Their, their rigid, ritualistic observances were rooting against a man to be healed. They were looking at Jesus and saying, if he does this, if he heals on the Sabbath, if he breaks the law that man made, not that God made, we can get him. Can you imagine being so dogmatically devoted to your own definition of religion that when a man's life is hanging in the balance, when a man's soul restoration is just words away, you are rooting for him to stay disfigured so that your self-righteousness is merited? Most of you would say, I can't imagine that, but are we so different? I know that I have found myself sitting inside a church building squabbling about what worship style is correct or what Bible translation is best while there are people wandering outside disfigured in their sin and desperately in need of the restoration that the gospel brings. This is you and me forcing sinners and sufferers to come to God on our terms and not humbly walking with them to the foot of the cross. We are absolutely the man with the shriveled hand. But so often after the gospel has restored us completely, we take our hearts of flesh and turn them to hearts of stone. We are the very ones who create barriers between people and Jesus. But that's not love. Love doesn't create barriers. Love tears it down. John, the follower of Jesus, would write in a letter later on in his life to the churches of Asia Minor, and he would say this in 1 John. He says, if anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister as the Pharisees were showing, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not. He would go even deeper and challenge us even more just a couple verses before that when he would say, if anyone has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and has no compassion for them, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not just love with our words but with our deeds and with our actions. Jesus was serious about mercy. That's why John writes so heavily about it. John, the man who was closest to Jesus during his time on earth, writes constantly that if we do not love people, if we do not show justice and mercy to the poor, we cannot say that we love God. Mercy brings restoration. Restoration of justice, restoration of righteousness, restoration of you and me. Jesus' mercy at the cross restored our relationship with God, opening a way for us to live with him 
in a new kingdom. Jesus restores our hearts of stone and creates in us hearts of flesh. Another ancient Hebrew worship song says it like this. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed. God, God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. Through his work on the cross, Jesus acquires a restoration of of our hearts that the old covenant could never acquire. The new heart he gives allows space for us to accommodate joy, satisfaction, and restoration. To close, I'm just going to say that psalm again as a prayer. For those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, I want us to reflect on whether our hearts of flesh have been turned to hearts of stone. Scripture is full of people who hardened their own hearts. For those who haven't chosen to put your faith in Jesus, I would pray that you would pray this with us and that you would ask God to give you a new heart, one that can accommodate the life that Jesus gives us. So I'm just going to read this as a prayer. Let's pray together. Oh God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation in me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God. God of my salvation and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. Sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, O God. In Jesus' name, amen.